Welcome back to Subspace Radio. There is new Star Trek out there in the universe, and there's only two people who could be discussing it, and that is myself and Kevin Yank. How are you? It's it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. We got to get we got to get in there, get our hands dirty, and discuss Star Trek because nobody else is Kevin. There's nobody else out <laughs> That's there. That's what I hear. It's a yawning void of a commentary. We're filling a gap. There is definitely a need. For, for two guys to talk about Star Trek. and um, Look, if Beverly Crusher and her son Jack are needed in the forgotten corners of the galaxy to provide medical aid, I'm sure someone out there needs our Star Trek opinions. Damn right. So we have just hit episode two of season three of Picard, and we are here to talk about it. And what are your first thoughts with the latest installment of the final season of Picard? This episode wasn't as strong as the opener, but is holding up the standard is the short version for me. This felt like a bit of like moving pieces around on the board in preparation for whatever they have in store for us next episode. It was a setup and a getting things where they needed to be sort of one for me. Yeah, very much so. It definitely felt like this is something that you know, everyone's been promoting. This is it's the 10 hour long Star Trek movie. And then when you watch an episode like this, you go, oh, that's why promoting things as 10 hour movies isn't good because you realize this type of stuff would take only five minutes in an actual movie, but they got to stretch it out to like an hour. So yeah, it's the same problem they had with Obi-Wan, the TV series over in the other franchise, Star Wars. It was the stretched out far too long. It should have just been a film. So, well, we talked last week about how pacing has been a consistent problem for Picard. And there's like hints of that coming in here, but you know what? I was never bored. Like every scene pulled me in. I enjoyed every moment. It just felt like looking back on it, not a whole lot happened in that one. Yeah, very much of that is true. In fact, completely. What I particularly noticed was, although I haven't had as much hands-on experience with the Star Trek series of Next Generation, I have seen all the films, obviously. And it did seem after that first episode of a lot of quirky banter back and forth and a little bit of embarrassing dad behavior from Riker, it did settle back into the very Star Trek Next Generation format of let's focus on Picard and Riker just being in the background. There were a lot of scenes where something really dramatic happened to Picard and Picard's standing there with his face taking up two thirds of the frame, emoting, and just out of focus over his shoulder is Riker doing not a whole lot. <laughs> no, I definitely, he was like quite prominent and great in episode one. And episode two, he went, all right, he has immediately gone back to number one of just being in the background. There was a lot of focus, obviously, this week on the identity and parentage, dare I say, of a certain character. That was like this whole episode felt like a slow build to the moment on the bridge where Crusher and Picard exchange meaningful looks and nothing more need be said. We understand Picard now has a son. I did get, yeah, exactly. I did get that sense of they had to begrudgingly mention something because it happened in season one, just to clarify the fact that this isn't even the real Picard. That's what we need to keep on reminding ourselves. Picard died in season one. And this You're talking is... about Vatic calling him out for being cybernetic or in the artificial flesh or however she worded it? Exactly. They call it out and you're there going, oh yeah, remember that? 
that was the worst thing. One of the many worst things. Season one went, oh, we've done the worst thing in Star Trek history. And season two goes, hold my beer. It is funny that that calamitous event of just, just over a season before is now reduced to little known trivia about <laughs> Admiral Picard. It, but it did seem like that embarrassing thing of going, oh, yeah, well, we do remember that he is actually not the yeah. replica, but he's just a synthetic life form. Anyway, moving on. Look at Amanda Palmer <laughs> being all awesome and amazing and crazy. Holy crap. How could we go this long without mentioning her? That was the highlight of the episode yeah. is her performance. And so non-Star Trek-y oh. in such a Star Trek-y way. Amanda Plummer is one of the most incredible performers, unique performers in screen. I've history. never seen her in anything. So like... you've never seen Pulp Fiction? Oh, she's in Pulp Fiction. She's Honey Bunny. Holy crap. That makes so much sense now. Her and Tim Roth. Yeah, she's the one yeah. who says, any of you move, I'm going to execute every... Yeah. yeah. That Holy is Amanda crap. Plummer. You almost suspect she's completely unhinged in real life. Yeah. That's how convincingly unhinged she plays I on love, screen. I love performers like that, like Crispin yeah. Glover as well. I hope oh, that, yeah. I hope they're getting the help that they need, but they, <laughs> you watch them on screen and go, no, this person could crack at any moment not it's a be. little scary yeah yeah and that's yeah. what you need in star trek you need uh -huh. that that you need because it's so bound together by it's oh, it's so formulaic yes. you need someone who look, seems not bound by the formula even like the fact when she said i'll give you an hour i'm going no don't go away for an hour stay here <laughs> yes You're i'm glad i'm glad we called her back a couple of times just to check in just outstanding yeah nothing like chewing all the scenery, but never doing it cliched. It was never cliched gimmicky. It was not this whole like almost Shakespearean approach mm. to it. There was just this rawness, this uniqueness that is so Amanda Plummer. She brought that to, she's done franchise work before with the Hunger Games. She was in uh, uh, hideously misused or well, underused, not misused, underused in the second Hunger Game movie. And she's just outstanding in every scene that she does. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great villain. And that, I brought, yeah, like we talk about the slow pace, it, was, it felt even slower whenever Amanda Plummer wasn't on screen. Yeah, and that is what we agreed on ahead of time would be our topic for the week, which is like scenery-chewing villains. And, yep, this is, I'm very interested to see where our list goes. I know, they seem so prominent. I would not be surprised if we matched two for two and we had to explore our honorary mentions here. Because there's some who, like, I'm going with good scene chewing because there is that balance. There is, there's good scene chewing and there's bad scene chewing as well. Mm. You've got to get that balance right. I'll be interested to see where you went. Other highlights from the episode that you want to call out? Yes. So, slight spoilery, at the end of the episode, we finally found out who Rafi's contact was. And of course it was, as soon as they appeared, as they came into focus, literally, yeah. of course, it's, of course, of course it's war. The signs were all there when you knew to look for them. And it, that for me, that was, I've been, as we've talked about, I'm a little bit over the whole, try to be too modern and too dark with Star Trek, like with the swearing and the body horror and stuff that's gone a bit too far in some of the vibe. So how'd you do with the decapitations? Um, look, <laughs> look, as soon as Worf came in and started cutting fools and you literally saw fools being cut, yeah. I went, okay, this is good. I like seeing, I like seeing classic Klingon type of look. None of this new discovery look Klingon. I like this. Mm. Not even the classic classic, the middle classic, yeah. just coming in and cutting arms off and heads off. And I'm there going, oh. An old school wharf being too old for this shit. I love it. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. 
I told For you sure. to not engage. Just a taste here at the end, leaving us to expect more next week, no doubt. Very much looking forward to seeing that dynamic shifted because, yeah, that's why they brought Michael Dorn into Deep Space Nine to jig things up a bit and shake things up a bit. And it was an inspired decision. So Michael Dorn always knows how to bring the gold. How about you? Any um, things we haven't mentioned? that uh... I thought of you when the shuttle was blown up and the panel flew towards camera with Savick's name on it. Yeah. The, the shuttle was called the Savick. That's right. Yeah. We've been told off screen that Savick was eventually promoted to be the first captain of the Titan. So it was Savick, then Riker, and now Shaw. Of course. So that's why the ship's carrying around a shuttle named after everyone's mm. favorite love interest for Spock. It was the first time I can remember seeing a shuttle named after a character in Star Trek rather than a historical figure from Earth's past or a river or a mountain or whatever. And it's great. We're so far in the future, they've used up every explorer or, <laughs> or state in well, California. It just made me crave the Savick series or the, uh, some, somehow I would love to see the story of what made Savick famous enough to have a shuttle named after I wonder what, yeah, I wonder what the actress who replaced Kirstie Alley is doing now. Obviously, we lost Kirstie Alley last year, sadly. Robin Curtis, we see her in interviews now and then. And yeah, I don't necessarily need to see a contemporaneous <laughs> Savick, although if Robin Curtis showed up unexpectedly to go, what did you do to my shuttle? That would be amazing. <laughs> Whatever form, like it could be off screen, it could be in comics, whatever. I'm just craving that story of now that we know Savick was a captain yeah. of the Titan, and I want to know what happened. And it makes sense because that's what Savick was so ambitious. Savick wanted to be a captain in the in the Wrath of Khan. So that's a that's yeah. a great realization for her. How did you find the revelation that was the worst kept secret because we picked it straight away that uh, Jack was Picard's son? I'm glad they got there reasonably quickly, like... In a lesser series, they would have strung us out all season on yeah. that. So I'm glad they got there. The scene in the turbo lift where Riker's saying, come on, man, tell me you're seeing what I'm seeing. I really liked that. That was a good moment. Come on. Yeah. And it was... Because Picard's in denial. I, I love a Picard in denial. <laughs> and R Riker calling him out on what we can all see in the audience. Like, it's... I think it's okay for us to be sitting there going, come on, we know what's happening. As long as someone on screen is also having that reaction. And it has to be someone that we trust enough. So yeah. if it was any other character, you go, why are they saying it? But to have Riker there going, don't say you yeah. don't see it. Come on, man. So I like it. I think giving him a British accent is still a little on the nose. Well, he's a British actor. Yeah. Yeah. Having now seen him interviewed, I'm like, oh, okay. So he didn't learn a British accent for the part. <laughs> no, I saw, I've seen Ed Spielers on Downton Abbey. He was in a couple of seasons of that. He was okay in it. The character was a bit boring, but yeah, it's good to see the... That's where I'm at with Jack Crusher as well. Like he's okay. Character's a bit boring. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay. It's another going against the rules type of... I just want game. them to commit one way or the other. Either he's secretly evil, like when they were reading out the rap sheet of all his con jobs and fake identities, I was like, cool, lean it, into that. We haven't seen like a true, like working outside the bounds of the law, Robin Hood, or even like a true evil con artist in Star Trek in quite some time. And I would totally be there for that. But... 
it seems they really want us to like him at the same time. And so they're, the fact that they're walking that thing of, okay, he's bad, but he's not that bad. You still like him, right? I would prefer the, for them to commit one way or the other. This is the era, Mr. Yank, of the anti-hero. There's a lot of big pushes in cinema and sure. TV to push the anti-hero. So they're pushing that yeah. thing of... Yeah, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And that's yeah, if he's fatally flawed, but a hero despite that, great. Yeah. I would love that. But so far, they're like, hey, he's just misunderstood. Uh, he, he only did crimes because he had to. He's, <laughs> he's actually really good. And yeah, I guess I, yeah, I want them to deal with the fact that he was all too ready to bribe people with weapons on his medical ship in this episode. And... Did some pretty serious stuff this if that rap sheet is to be believed. Like, I want them to play fair with us on that stuff. Definitely. I'm very, th yeah, this episode in whole was just setting up. Now we know mm. all this stuff. We've spent 45 minutes to an hour building up to it. Now we see the effect of it. So that's going to be fun to see how yeah. he actually interacts with Beverly and with the three of them, that, how that dynamic is going to work. This is where the meat of this series is going to start happening. And now with Wolf in the picture and the rest of the cast of the originals slowly filtering in, it's, yeah, it was very much an episode. This was a step up episode, creating the essentials so they can step into some better stuff next week. Yeah, I agree. The tiny moment of they set up the transport inhibitors to keep Jack from being abducted from the ship at the start. And then when the Titan warps in and they try to beam them off, they can't because the transporter inhibitors are still on. That moment of like transport malfunction. Oh, God, it's the inhibitors. We forgot to turn them off. Like it was a tiny speed bump in in between moments in the grand scheme of this episode. But it was the sort of thing that made the technology feel real to me. Yes. That you can turn on this magic thing to fix a problem but it causes it also causes problems exactly like, as soon yeah it, they it didn't just stop as soon as the titan arrived and they went oh it, the inhibitor only works for transporters on the baddie ship it goes no it's all transporters so you need to stop that then, yeah and then anytime they create technology that has rules and they play by those rules i find it satisfying yeah and that was a satisfying moment of that for me there was a lovely shot of the titan arriving so like cutting off the tractor beam that's a shot I haven't seen in Star Trek before. I like seeing shots where they break the reality or the expectations we have and go, how do you stop a tractor beam? We'll have a big ass ship go right in front of it. And they go, does that work? I don't know, but it looks cool. Sneed the Ferengi, great. One of the best Ferengis I've seen. It wasn't they, good Ferengi. It was more of They the... gave themselves permission to reinvent the makeup and the, I guess, characterization a bit and it worked for me it was very much more gritty ferengi yeah very gritty very menacing and but not the cliched menacing ferengi from like season one of next gen there was this there was an individuality to him so they've taken the best bits of how the ferengi developed yeah. with deep space nine added in that well let's make them menacing again because even the menacing ones in deep space nine are a little bit Silly. He didn't say human. He said, I like human stuff. And it, like, he, he didn't pronounce it. Strangely. No, he didn't do the human. I, oh, <laughs> if it was very soft. But yeah, he was great and, 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 and held a decapitated head very well. 
Yeah, yeah. There was a line from Vatic, I believe it is afternoon in the soul system. That's not how afternoon works, is what I wrote down. <laughs> it's always afternoon somewhere in the soul system. So that was a strange line, if you ask me. Um, everything else she said was so astute and on point. Get your time zones right, Vatic. Come on, come on Vatic. Yeah, it's, a, it's an easy thing to do. I was impressed with the captain, did the usual thing of he was such a prick. Shaw. Yeah, Shaw was such yeah, a yeah. prick in episode one, but you saw that element of going... All right. Okay. He's still prickish, but did the right stuff. But he was very much going. I've helped Seven him played to his ego and it worked. And it worked. I like that. It yep. worked. But then he complained for the rest of it going, oh, we're stuffed now. All of this stuff. Okay. I really liked all those procedural beats of Picard and Shaw debating what should happen. And Shaw at one point goes, clear your conscience, Picard, whoever this kid may be, he's not worth the lives of my crew. And Picard's just like leaning against the banister and looking guilty because he suspects this person's his son. Yeah. But he, he, he's not really ready to admit it yet. But that all that stuff felt procedural. Like we're seeing people be at work with their faces on and like saving face or knowing something but not admitting to it. All very rich in a way that we haven't gotten in Star Trek in a while, I feel like. Yes, and it paid off at the end as well with Shaw going, this kid's scum, why are you doing so much? And then he reveals and you just see Shaw go, all right, okay. I'm not going to win this one. I'm not going to win this one, okay. <laughs> We're here, we're doing this now. Yeah. Right. And that was really fun. That was a great realization. Shaw's been a wonderful character. He yeah. Is, yeah, brought a, a new approach as well to, to the captain type role and to have that moment where he just goes, all right, well, we're definitely not getting out of this now. Yeah, I have to, this is like a backhanded compliment, but I will congratulate them for not pulling me out of this in the moment. The fact that, Sneed is working out of the back room of Rafi's ex-husband's bar. Just coincidentally, the wanted man for the the covert mission that Rafi is on just happens to be working out of her ex-husband's bar. That is small galaxy stuff. Like that shouldn't happen in a small town, let alone a world, let alone a galaxy. So it is completely beyond belief, but I didn't notice it in the moment. And so they got away with it. And they, cause they did have that beautiful moment of the ex going, you can just go now and come see yeah. your son, or yeah. I can give you this information and you can risk your life to do this thing. And you just see Rafi going, damn, and you go, Whoa, that type of stuff we like. That's, That's right. All's fair as long as they are building the characters. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we've had our chat and discussion about the most recent episode, and that has inspired mm -hmm. us to look at, because of the incredible work of Amanda Plummer in this recent episode, and, and this is a bit, we have her for another, like, eight episodes. I feel like we haven't gushed enough about her Vatic. Incredible. Her joy, joyous laughter, I think. A laughing villain yes. who's like... I don't know if I'm going to win or lose this, but I'm having a great time here. That is a particular note that yeah. we have not heard in a while in the Star Trek orchestra. Especially that part of the game, we're going to run and we're going to defend and we're going to protect and just run again. <laughs> oh, you. Yeah, just that patronizing tone and that just glee. And also all that fact of going, I love causing mayhem. Um, a smoking villain too. And with those nice, real cool, like cigarette cigar type uh, yeah, she's yeah. got a cigarette holder, or it looks like a joint rolled and holding in holding in some little piece of plastic. But yeah, and no makeup, no alien species, just an incredible actor put in a chair 
And she's got like scars down her face. Yes. And I think she's mentioned early in this episode as the marked woman. At least I assume Vatic is who was being referred to there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, completely mysterious, but like relatively human as far as we can tell. And that's just the first appearance. So we've got eight yeah. more episodes to go. So the that gives us that play with a 10 episode movie or 10 hour long movie is to find out the depths of Vatic's hate and anger. Yeah, there's got to be a story there. It has to be a story there. And to get someone of Amanda Plummer's standard as a performer is going to be great to see what else she can do with her remaining so, episodes. So who else in Star Trek history tickled your memory banks when uh, when you were sitting watching? Well, yes, we picked two each. And I'm going to start one more as the actor. The mm. actor and what they're brought and how they're such a favorite within modern Star Trek world. And the more we see of them, the better within Star Trek. It makes it a better movie. I'm focusing on Jeffrey Coombs. Ooh. Yeah. And his six other characters. And also uh, uh, Brunt as well. Yeah. Um, who was quite a villain for Quark. So Wayne isn't what you would describe as like the big maniacal, almost Shakespearean villain. But yeah. there is a quiet tone and a calm and a theatricality to his Wii U, which is mesmerizing to watch. And yeah, I, I, I mean, we can quibble definitions over chewing the scenery. Like often when you use that term, you mean someone is playing so big, they are all but hanging off the side of a railing and swinging from the chandeliers in there in their exuberance. And you're right, Wei-Yun is a much quieter, more sinister presence, but he does have that chuckle where, you know, when something's going his way and you don't know it yet, he's like, ha, 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 ha. And, and I think we get that from most of Jeffrey Coombs's characters as well. You've got that beautiful razor wit as well. Coombs is such an intelligent actor and how he puts emphasis on certain words and phrases to really give that nod to the audience acknowledgement of what he is doing it's it's those tropes of melodrama and theater styles that because he's a theater nerd when i yeah well, i've mentioned it before interviewing him he loves the theater i love the actors who love acting i love actors who go into the craft and not the wankiness and all that type of stuff about who they've met and who they've worked with but actors who love acting who love the craft and creating characters in the process and Coombs is one of those actors. He has just lived his life on the stage and on, on camera. And whether it be Reanimator, which is just pure schlock, D-grade horror, body horror stuff, that's uh, he knows what type of show he's doing. So he takes it seriously, but he knows where he can put his tongue in his cheek or whether he does it straight lace. And that scene-chewing element of it is so apparent with how he interacts with the Cardassians, with yeah. Jake, with the... With yeah, yeah. For Vorta. those who don't know Deep Space Nine, Wei-Yun plays uh, Vorta, which is the administrators of the Dominion. When the Dominion War occurs and they come and occupy Bajor, Wei-Yun is the bureaucrat yes. who runs Deep Space Nine. And everyone's afraid of him because he has an army behind him, but he is a weaselly administrator whose job is just to enforce the rules so yeah he's very weaselly and kowtows to mm. the founders who are the top but That's then right. they are quite vicious he can be wayne can be quite vicious and short and sharp and manipulative 
with the Cardassians, who they're in an alliance with, and quite cruel and brutal to the Jen Hadar, who are the uh, the foot soldiers. And they're all clones. They're all clones. They're, yeah, they're a cloned or genetically engineered species, and they have built into them that they worship the founders yes. or the changelings as gods. And that... Whenever you see him shift gears from toady administrator to sycophantic worshipper, it's fascinating to watch him switch gears in that way. That's that's some scene chewing right there, and yeah. beautiful moments with obviously him. Him with Odo is great oh, because of course. yes, so Odo is from the founders species, and but he works for the in alliance with the Federation, so he's our hero. And Weyun, how he interacts, treating him as a god, but also trying to manipulating back onto the side of that and frustrated with that him. feels like they couldn't have planned that better but it seems that they must have discovered that in the creation process of okay odo's race is going to invade they're going to have these people who worship them and oh odo's going to be there yes uh, and oh that's that must have been delicious when they discovered it. I'd, yeah, I'd love that type of stuff. Like, you know, Garrick was only meant to be in the series one episode. Yeah. And then they went, no, we've got to do more. What could we do? And so they could just see if we do this and this, oh, and we could have this combination of character here. And they just go, give it to Coombs. He knows what he's doing. Also, something that also helps with him being able to play it big or chew the scenery now and then is that as clones, they are completely replaceable. And so on several occasions... <laughs> Weyun is dispatched graphically on screen. And then an hour later, a new Weyun comes and goes, oh man, that was an inconvenience. <laughs> um, and of course, in D Space Nine, he also plays Brunt, one of the Ferengi. And so his character reappears again. And there's even a, so like a heist, the Magnificent Ferengi, I believe. The yes, episode, yeah. from the Ferengi Commerce Authority or yes. something like that. Yeah. He's like the tax man for the Ferengi. And um, he uh, gets into scrapes with Quark all the time. And he's, again, a whole different character. If you did not know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I know. It took me, those characters <laughs> had appeared several times over before someone mentioned to me that they were the same actor. And yeah. I said, oh, of course it is. Course. That's incredible. Yeah, he's my first choice because how he chews the scenery. It's just, I can never get tired of seeing Jeffrey Coons in Star Trek. Yeah. What about you? Who's your first scene chewing villain? Look, it seems obvious to say it, but I'm going to go with the obvious for my first one today, and I'm going to pick General Chang, Amanda Plummer's daddy, Christopher Plummer, who in Star Trek VI played the eye patch wearing second-in-command of the Klingon diplomatic delegation, and who is revealed to be one of the masterminds of the plot to kill the Klingon ambassador in that film. He quotes Shakespeare. Oh. He's got a big chair to spin around in, which Vatic's big chair seems to be a pure homage to that. And he runs a Klingon bridge like no other Klingon captain we've seen before or since. The holding up the two fingers and like twitching them to, to call for a photon torpedo to be fired. That is something that Christopher Plummer and General Chang brought to us, and it's been delicious ever since. Yeah, Christopher Plummer is not beyond taking on, I mean, he's quite a you know, respected, well-respected stage and screen actor. His work in The Sound of Music, obviously something he looked down upon, but later life with his work in The Insider, one of my favorite performances of him as Mike Wallace and For All the Money of the World, all this type of stuff and the reputation he had. But a lot of people forget he was just a jobbing actor as well, and he was more than happy to do 
some genre stuff as well. So he did Star Crash in the 70s, which was an Italian ripoff of Star Wars. And he just did it because they said, oh, we need you for a couple of days in Rome to film. He went, Rome's my favorite city. So I'll just come take my take your money, be in Rome, my favorite city, and shoot this schlocky sci-fi thing. And so to have, but he still has that <laughs> amazing ability to bring that dignity and respect to the text, no matter what level it's at. And you see that in Star Trek Six. He takes it so seriously. There have been other attempts to play big villains in Star Trek, but until Vatic this week, I feel like no one did it as convincingly, as scene-chewingly, in a good way, since General Chang. That the cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. Yeah. Like that is a tentpole moment in the entire Star Trek franchise. And we have Christopher Plummer to thank for it. There's the three moments when he's just about to leave at the end of the dinner. And he does yeah. in his beautiful delivery, do we not hear the chimes of midnight? <laughs> then you have that let slip the dogs of war. And then yeah. as the missile, as the torpedo is trying to find the air vent saying to be or not to be. And then boom, <sighs> you just go, that's the, yeah. Look, we were talking about it earlier with Jeffrey Coombs being quite subtle with his scene chewing. Christopher Plummer does the whole shamir. He grabs the set and chews onto it hard. He is so theatrical, almost grand dame level of performance, but it's, but he can slip it down to those quiet moments as well of just, it's just, you could watch it on the stage, be in the back row of a 400 seat venue on Broadway or the West End and be right at the back row and still think that he's performing directly to you with that energy. And it just, it's hard to get that balance of a theatrical performance on a cinematic screen. And it's one of the best examples of it. I don't know if you had this experience watching Star Trek VI for the first time, but for me, a really big performance like this can help to hide a villain in plain sight. I remember like the promotion before this film came out and it was like, okay, there's the normal looking Klingons and then there's the bald one with the eye patch. And yeah. it's like, wow. Okay, that's, he's the heavy, he's the muscle. He's there to look intimidating, but there's no way he's going to be important to the plot. But as that film goes on, he goes from the outraged first officer in the opening mission there where the assassination occurs to suddenly he is arguing the case against Kirk and Bones in a court of law. And then at the end of the film, he is flying the cloaked, the bird of play that can fire while cloaked. And just, it is not until surprisingly late in that film that I went, oh, he's the villain. I didn't realize that. He was hiding in plain sight all along. It's an amazing moment. And we've talked about those three moments, but at the courtroom as well, there's that great moment when he's talking and they've got the uh, translation things up on their ears and he starts getting- Don't working. wait for the translation! Answer me now! Yes. Yeah. Great. You can have your, um, you know, do you want answers? I want the truth. There's no, don't wait for the translation. Tell me now. Yeah. And I know I was at that age. I was, so it came out early nineties. 91. 91. So I was in about year eight. And so I was fully starting my journey of being a drama nerd. And where I started identifying actors in different roles and uh, where they're coming back and going, oh, okay, this actor is, I remember from this. And so it was always an exciting moment when you're there going, oh, I, I know who this actor is. I've seen Christopher Plummer in Murder by Degree and I've seen him in Sound of Music. So that importance going, 
of this actor's here now. So that expectation, I was developing that when I was like 13 years old, watching Star Trek six, I'm going, oh, this isn't just some random performer. This is someone who has history and heritage and I've seen them in other stuff and I know what they've done in that other stuff. I'm excited to see what they bring. And it's, and that's like you said, defined the scene chewing villain from then on. It's, and everyone goes, oh, so like. Eric Banner was quite disappointing as Nero in the first Star Trek movie in 2009 because you're there going, okay, that's Eric Banner. There's an expectation. Oh, okay. No, he's just shouting and screaming. He doesn't have that charm or that, what's the, you know, panache. That, that's it's an old school term. I'm sorry I used it. But yeah, <laughs> Plummo is, uh, is certainly bringing his A game in every level. It's not just one note. And that's the best thing about it. There are so many nuanced levels to his performance and he knows he treats it with respect but he also knows it's just fun have fun with that not the only big performance in this film i would also call out marcia the cameloid played by iman in oh. this film she um you know she plays subtle but she's smoking a cigarette and winking at the audience as she does it a cigar, I should say. David Bowie was a very lucky man. And just say, <laughs> not all species have their testicles in the same place as Kirk. <laughs> Who's your number two? My number two was going to be was going to be Chang. Oh, um, there you go. Have you got an honorable mention? Of course, I have an honorable mention. If we're talking up scene chewing villains, you, there's you can't go past. There's for me, there's two. So there's Chang. And there's Khan. There's got to be Khan. Of course, he's got to be on that list. You cannot lose century villains without the beautiful Ricardo Montalban coming back after. And in many ways, I think his performance in the movie is much better because in the first one, he's stuck to the confines of a television show appearance and he's coming in. It was just a jobbing actor. Did a great job. Wonderful role. Wonderful performance. I also feel like they tied his hands by like identifying him as ethnically Indian and he was playing the yoga of it all and the Zen of it all. And there was like, there was, there was a layer that they were keeping him hidden beneath that I feel like he was freed of along with his bulging chest in the film. Tell you what. Yeah. They just went, you're not tied by anything. Just go. Yeah. And Every single moment, every single scene, it's all the different levels as well. Lovely little nuances. It's not so much, for me, it doesn't seem like a theatrical scene chewing performance like Christopher Plummer, but it's definitely this larger than life screen performance. Yeah. For me, it's a different type. There's not an element of theatricality, but there's definitely an element of cherishing every line, relishing mm. the evil of it because, mm. oh, but it's not even evil, relishing the hatred the pure yeah. hatred and relishing causing pain to this man who Kirk, who he feels has done him so wrong. It is on the one hand, a performance freed by the fact that it is a villain that we know is here for one film. We know is defeated decisively <laughs> at the end of the film. So there's no need to hold anything back. Play it at 11 because this is your one chance. But also informed by the history of that character that I feel like gives us a leg up of he can go big right away yeah. because we've seen him before and so we will believe it, that it's grounded in that history of the character. I mean, he makes taking off a helmet amazing. Oh, the taking off a scarf and then the... Yeah, yeah. You know, 
that is just pure. No one does that in reality. Nobody does it in real life. And cinema is meant to be the verisimilitude is how it's defined. Even if you're doing sci-fi or fantasy, if you believe what you say and say it in a believable way, that makes it work. But there are moments that are tied to our genre that we love that do not exist in the world of reality. You have to play it straight. You can't ham it up because then you lose that sincerity. But just the mere ability to take off a scarf and raise up your goggles in a way that is just so powerfully dramatic going, this is me. I am the mm. bad guy. Nobody mm. does that in real life. Kevin, you've never walked into a space, taken off your glasses and everyone goes, oh gosh, okay, he's going to seek revenge on all of us. Another uh, literature quoting villain, Milton, I believe, yes. in Khan's case. Yes, yes, yes. From hell's heart I stab yeah, at thee. thee. And it's good to have yeah, that balance of you see him at his height when he's yeah. pure evil with all the power. You see him and he's desperate when he's like losing his crew members and his, his family or his children or whatever. And then at the end, you see him destroyed and bloodied. And yeah, the, the flayed skin uh, hanging off of him and he's still angry. And the blood on the side of his face and he's talking just out the other side of his mouth. Oh, so good. Yeah, and operating the Genesis device. Oh, it's incredible. You, that's what you want. When you're a young kid going, I want to be an actor, you want to have a dramatic death scene and you want to be like all those big moments you want to hit. It's all in Star Trek 2. How would you want to be Benedict Cumberbatch who's given the job to follow that performance um, in a parallel universe? Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to find out what their thought process was, but they went into that film so cocky, just thinking, yeah. oh, whatever, we can do whatever. We're talking about Star Trek Into Darkness here, by the way. Yes. In, which in, in a parallel universe, Khan comes back and he's white for some reason. Yeah. He's Benedict Cumberbatch. And the thing that powered Khan in Star Trek II was the personal vendetta against Kirk. Yeah. But in this parallel universe, they've never met. They've never met. No. But, but somehow Khan is supposed to be just as angry a dude. <laughs> and he's angry with Federation or whatever. Look, it's, yeah. it, I don't think they considered it at all. And mm. I, you see it. They go, let's use the gimmick of Khan and... No, have no respect for it whatsoever. It was just their pure to flip it around and go, we're not going to kill Spock this time. We're going to kill Kerr. Mm. And mm. so it's just this case of there's no, not tipping in the hat or bowing down. I mean, it shouldn't be touched on anyway. It's not like yeah. bringing back a new definition of an alien species. It's a case of this is a unique character, a unique performance. So you couldn't bring back a Chang or anything like that. You. They are so unique to the actor who plays them. And like you said, it's the personal vendetta. We yeah. haven't had that. You, I didn't, I hadn't seen the space seed until quite recently, but you didn't need to have seen it. You picked it up because it's so beautifully written and well-performed and well choreographed. But with this, it was like we've talked about before when he says, I am Khan, they don't know who the hell he is. That line is said for us in the audience. And when you're doing mm. moves like that in a movie, you're just doing it purely not even fan service, it's just going, trying to manipulate the audience into, who are huge fans, into putting more invested emotional interest into it. Yeah, it, drama by reference. Yeah. It's, exactly. It never works. Yeah. yeah. And it did. And you can see they had no respect for the original character or the performance of Dear Ricardo. Yeah. Okay. I've got my number two, but before I do, I just want to, I want to go through my hall of fame of, of honorable mentions because there are a few on I'm this interested, list. Yeah, see if there are any who match up with mine. I'm sure you would have thought of Gul Dukat. 
I Gold Gold Ducat was gonna be in there with me. He's so long running. You get to see every color of him, and sometimes he's rational and reserved, and then sometimes he's completely unhinged. And certainly t towards the culmination of Deep Space Nine at the end, when he's completely drinking his own Kool Aid and <laughs> and believes that victory was preordained for him. That is the. 11 out of 10 Galdu cut that I think does rise to some of these other performances we've talked about. Incredible performance and incredible history of how we can change a character over seven or evolve a character in seven seasons. Yeah. So like moments where Kira goes back using one of the, the stones, the time yes. stone to meet her mother. And you find that she was having an affair with Galdu cut, one of Ducat's mistresses. Galdukat, for anyone who hasn't watched Deep Space Nine, was the he was the administrator of Teraknor, which became Deep Space Nine, the space station in orbit around Bajar during the Cardassian occupation. occupation. And because of the quite arguably war crimes that he committed during that period, he and Kira Nerys are at loggerheads throughout all seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, and it is a great journey. And spoilers ahead, later on, Akira finds out that not only was her mother known to Goldukat, but they had an intimate relationship, and she, her mother... Small galaxy, like I was saying Small before. galaxy, <laughs> and her mother, this is her way of surviving. And mm. that, but the little gimmick was at the end that Goldukat actually had feelings for, even though it was a manipulated and twisted you know, yeah twisted relationship and he had all the power and she was completely at his whim but there was an affection there and in a weird sense and then it gets even weirder when like in see you know, the final couple of episodes he gets genetically changed to look Bajora and then starts having an affair with Louise Fletcher a part of his plan it's it but some of it works some of it doesn't but adding to this character and Mark Alimo is just outstanding he he relishes, he brings out the relish really well. He hits the dramatic moments really well and the tender moments of Ducat really well. And a masterful performance over seven seasons. Plays a great arch Romulan in the early days of Star Trek The Next Generation as well. Yes, well, and this, especially after we talked about the brilliant work of uh, David Warner in Next Gen. So, like, David Warner established what Mark could do with Gold Ducat in over seven seasons. Speaking of Louise Fletcher, Kai Wynn... I don't know. Do you count her as scenery chewing or was she too reserved in her portrayal? Again, it's like, I mean, that's the thing. Louise Fletcher won an Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for being the most menacing evil, one of the most menacing evil characters in cinema history. But it was the quiet evil. It yes. was the insidious evil. And I, like when I first saw it, I had this expectation when she won an Oscar for this and I saw it for the first time and I'm there going, where is the performance? It's It's meant to be evil. And then realize you go oh that's why and that's mm. what she is so good at those moments of calm in public and even calm in private while she's being yeah. yelled and screamed at and being confronted for the bad things that she's done clearly done by kira and just embracing it back with a smile and calm but able to flip on a dime in very subtle ways so it, i think it's not scene chewing christopher Plummer. And Ricardo just grabbing the scenery and going, look at this. Yeah. She just slowly walks around and just takes a nibble off and takes a nibble <laughs> off here. And he, and then by the end of the episode, you go, good Lord, most of this whole set has gone. Where is it? <laughs> and Louise Fletcher She's, walks off. She going, gobbled it up Ugh. when you weren't looking. <laughs> yeah. She's gobbled it up. She burps and goes, excuse yeah. me. 
I'll be back next week. <laughs> Retcha. Getting bigger, though. The Borg Queen in First Contact definitely doesn't hold back. Now, how do you compare the two performances of Alice Kruger from First Contact and Annie Wershing, who sadly recently yeah. passed away, but played yeah. the Borg Queen in Picard Season 2? We also had Susanna Thompson in Voyager as well, yes. who played the role. Look, I I think of the character and not the actor in this case. Mm. They all did a great job with it. Definitely. They were all playing a consistent character in my mind. So yeah, not my top two, but I think it is definitely an example of the arch playing it to the hilt villain who stands out in any episode or film she is in. I did like that shift from Ball Queen in First Contact was very much the seductress with Data mm. and even mm. brought a bit of that with Picard. But then in the Picard season to have how that manipulation works with uh, Alison Pill's character. So it's a tone shift, but playing more the friendship, the confidant, the, the devil in your ear whispering of what you could potentially achieve and unleash that yeah. that range over three different performances over decades is a lovely choice as well you can't can't leave out q it's almost stating the obvious but the dude traipsed across the bridge of the enterprise playing a trumpet it doesn't come much bigger or more scenery chewing than q i think the only question as to whether he should be on this list is he a villain or not well, that's because it, isn't it? Yeah. Especially half the time he wasn't. Half the time he was the trickster that our characters needed. And especially with these appearances in Voyager, which very much bringing out the heart of Q and how he defines himself as a timeless being who has omnipotent powers and then going, I want to not exist anymore. I'm tired of this type of stuff. And John Delancey is such a wonderful performer as well. One of those, we talk about Christopher Plummer, who's Canadian, but John Delancey is American. Those American theatrical actors have a very different style to say the theatricality of Royal Shakespeare Company, Patrick Stewart, to see the American theater nerd up against the British theater nerd. René Bourgeois is old school mm. American theater royalty. Seeing all those meshed in with your, your Patrick Stewart's is a great, and they're perfect match for each other. And it was great to see him back in Picard season two. It's just a shame that they didn't give him yeah, yeah. A, better, a, be a better interpretation. Yeah. I feel like we have a whole episode to do at some point of best Klingons, but Gowron stands out to me as a particularly large performance. Yes. And that, uh, that served a similar purpose to the one I was talking about before. Gowron appears in Star Trek The Next Generation as part of the arc of who is going to be the new Klingon Chancellor of the High Council. And, and Picard is in the position of selecting the successor. And Gowron is... He is the he is there to make you think he's a villain. So everything about his performance in his first appearance is calculated to seem evil so that it's a surprise when the obvious villain is revealed to be the villain. Yes. He's up against Duras, who we know is traitorous and in league with Romulans, and yet Garon's eyes Those look so eyes. evil. And he is, he is so large in his performance that you, for a second, you suspect that Duras might be innocent and it might be Gowron who's the bad guy. Ultimately, like he was so memorable. They brought him back again and again and was a major presence in Deep Space Nine. A huge and, presence in Deep Space Nine. 
a great example of absolute power corrupting absolutely so that it was a tragedy almost that he did turn evil in the end. Yes. Uh, but the foundations were set from the very beginning when he came on as a guest star of the week on Next Gen to seem evil, but not actually be it. And that was a great thing. I've mentioned it before. What I love about Deep Space Nine is I prefer it when they forgo that classic thing of the Klingons are just bad. I love yeah. in D Space Nine, they take that time. You've got Martok, you've got yeah, Gowron, you've got Worf himself. Worf yeah. himself. And that you see them not just as this, as one, they, one race, and they all have the same thought process. Each of them have their own opinions of how the Dominion War is going and how Klingon should be involved and all that type of stuff. And to have that show up so that, I, I, I mean, D Space Nine, I adore because the Klingons are working with the Federation that you never, yes. and, what they do to bring in those type of unity as opposed to going, oh, it's just the, the Cowboys versus the Indians again. That's an old school dated and quite offensive way of doing things to bring in that new mm -hmm. element of actually we work together now. And yet Gowan, just an actor built for playing <laughs> someone who may not be evil, but damn, they look at those eyes. Robert O'Reilly, those eyes paid the bills. Well I done, Robert. Sure. Yeah. You found what your strengths were and you played into that. You stared it down. But my actual second scenery-chewing villain is William Chatner's Captain Kirk. And you're wondering, how can Captain Kirk be a villain in The Enemy Within, the original series, season one, episode four, he is split in two by the transporter and we get to see evil Captain Kirk. Oh, wow. And William Shatner often called out for playing it big. This is the time he went, oh, I'm evil this time? I better play it big. <laughs> so this is, Capt this is Captain Kirk played large on purpose. And oh my God, it's over the top. They cover him with sweat. He yells into the camera, I am Captain Kirk! And smashes the computer in his quarters. It is amazing. Beautiful. And that's episode four. So that's like yeah. quite early on because obviously we've seen the beautiful ham of Shatner, the Shat ham. Oh yeah. With, with him going full gangster. Strong out of the gate. So yeah, Shatner. I'll have to. I have heard about the enemy within. I'll have to. Oh, go back and it see. is great. Yeah, it will make every other Shatner performance look subtle <laughs> in a great <laughs> way. <laughs> That's the thing. Shatner can do. He can do yeah. subtle, and it's just yeah. because whether it be the direction, not yeah. Certain directors could reel the reel him in, and mm -hmm. you that with a lot of actors who have a name for themselves. Unless you have a confident director to reel them in, they can go wild yeah. and Shatner is one of those so when he's with Nicholas Meyer he behaves himself you know in Star Trek 2 when he's seething and he yells Khan into the communicator this is a 45 minute episode of seeing Kirk that like for 45 that. minutes look I'm living it I have to check it out that's good that's a good choice that's a good second yeah, choice yeah yeah well, there you go. Boy, a lot of scenery got chewed this episode, Rob. <laughs> In many different ways, like mm. to the obvious of just chewing down a, a, a picture frame or to Louise Fletcher's subtly just nibbling here and there for uh, 45 minutes and then walking away with everything chewed. And I have a funny feeling we may have peaked too early on Vatic. I suspect the heights of her performance are yet to come. Yeah, we have yet to see the full scope of what. I can't believe, I don't know if I've seen Amanda Plummer do regular television before i've seen her in a lot of movies but i'm there going we've got her for at the most eight episodes yeah eight hours of amanda Plummer yeah, yeah. being pure villain that is we only got her dad for 
45 minutes on the screen, if that, even less. I'm waiting to see what will be the Khan on the bridge with the skin flaying off his hands. What will be that version of Vatic uh, that we get? Yeah, we have no idea what a man, she has yet to go to the depths and the range of everything that she can do with Vatic. Yeah.